going to look at uh, the, the uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. that's known as the Great Resurrection Chapter. And of course it places then significant emphasis upon the resurrection. And that's been our focus week by week as we've gone through this since uh, the celebration of Easter. And um, probably when we come to think about the symbol of Christianity, most of us would probably think about the cross. We have one here. We have one on hundreds of them on the end of your pews and all those places that we find them here uh, in this place of worship. Uh, and, and I think that probably the cross is the most recognizable symbol of our faith. The cross there stands for what, what God did for us through Jesus Christ on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But when early Christianity burst forth upon the scene, uh, the symbol of Christianity was not so much the cross as it was of the resurrection because they wanted to focus upon hope and life change and, and all those things are so true. In fact, an art historian by the name of Kenneth Clark says of the cross, in the first art of Christianity it hardly appears in the earliest example on the doors of Santa Sabina in Rome around uh, A.D. 430. It stuck away in a corner almost out of sight. Early Christian art is concerned with miracles, healings, and with the hopeful aspects of faith like the ascension and the resurrection. So the main theme of the early Christian believers was not focused so much around the cross, though its significance is of the death of Christ for our sins, but on the resurrection because of the hope that that offers to us of a newness of life. See, and the good news about that is, is because the resurrection is all about transformation and about life transformation. The cross is about what was taken away, and that is our sins. But the resurrection is about what God brings to us, what God gives to us, what God does in our life, and that is life transformation. So in the last two weeks we've been looking at the resurrection and its impact upon uh, human history as we find it in 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus Christ shattered the barrier of death, He transformed the life of every one of us who will choose to believe in Him and surrender to Him and follow Him in submission and obedience. Now let's look at our scripture today in 1 Corinthians beginning uh, in chapter 15 verse 20. Uh, Paul has talked previously about the fact that the resurrection is at the very core, the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then last week we looked at the implications of what if it had never happened? What if the resurrection had never happened? The devastating effects of that. And then we hear Paul burst into verse 20 with this affirmation and the implications that follow after the resurrection of Christ. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet." The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all." 
Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who were baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Well, when we heard Paul talk about the implications of the resurrection being the heart and core of the gospel, and then what would happen, what would be our circumstance today if the resurrection had not taken place, now we come to verse 20 and the verses that follow through verse 34. And what we find here is that Paul is, is talking about the influence of the resurrection of Christ as it will sweep across all centuries and into the future and the implications for that resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think there are at least three profound, powerful implications for our life and for our world, for our culture, for the church, uh, as we find Paul expounding upon the resurrection of Christ. The first one is this, that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the physical resurrection of all who will commit their life to Jesus Christ. It's so important for us to understand that Jesus was the first human being ever resurrected from the dead. Now, your mind might immediately go and say, well, what about Lazarus? Jesus brought him back from the dead. And what about some of these miraculous stories in the Old Testament? Even in the New Testament, we find that. Of others who were brought back from the dead. The difference we would have to distinguish is that Jesus was resurrected. These others were resuscitated. And how would we make that distinction? The difference is in the difference in their being brought back from the dead. The others who were brought back from the dead, Lazarus and others, were simply resuscitated because they came back to the same life and in the same form with which they had left it. But not so with Jesus Christ. When he came back, he was transformed. He had a different body. He was the same Christ. He was the same Lord. He was the same Son of God. But he had came back and we know he had a different body because it was a body that was different. That it would go through uh, locked doors when the disciples were huddled, scared for their life behind locked doors in the upper room. He says the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings to our life a quality of life and a dimension of life that we have never lived before. It's not simply a return to existence as we know it now, but it's being lifted to a higher, more free, more marvelous dimension of existence than we've ever known before. We can only imagine what life will be like for us after the resurrection. You see, Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. And so we follow in that with the promise that we too, as we commit our life to Him, that we too will experience that bodily resurrection and we will be transformed. And when you look with me at verses 20 through 22 in your Scripture, you will find that Paul grants us that assurance with two affirmations. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
Now, there are two Old Testament images that show our inclusion in this tremendous hope of the resurrection and how it is guaranteed to us. The first is the first fruits that he talks about. And the second is the comparison between Christ and Adam. Now, the first fruits he talks about can be traced probably back as far as Leviticus 23. And when the Israelite farmer was getting ready to harvest his crop, he would bring in the first fruits or the first gleaming from the fields and offer that up to God to say, this is a sample, this is the first fruits, the sample of what is going to come. And then he would come later with the full fruits of his offerings unto God. And so it reminds us then that Christ offered himself up to God as the first fruit of the resurrection. And it's a guarantee that there's more to come. There's more to life and there's more of us to come. And that he made the down payment as the first fruits of our resurrection. And then the second thing that Paul does is he points to the absolute certainty that this will happen by comparing both Adam and Jesus Christ. He says that just as one man, Adam, brought death to the human race, in one man through Christ will he bring life and resurrected life to us. See, when you look at the life of Adam and Christ, you will see that they both were change agents. Of course, Adam was on the negative side. He came into the world under the power and authority of God, living with a a paradise at his fingertips, and yet he chose to disobey God. And as a result of that, sin was unleashed in this world. And you and I, the Bible tells us, are all direct descendants of Adam. And because of that, we experience death. And our bodies tell us that. The life of our church in recent months have told us that. And, and hopefully we've gotten in touch with the fact that these board bodies in which we live now are not made to live forever. But these are mortal bodies. We are finite. We live for only a short period of time. And every year that we live ought to be a constant reminder to us of that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm approaching 60. In September, if I live to see that, I'll, I'll be 60. And I can feel that in my body. This year for the first time in doing all the work around the yard in spring, you know, cleaning up, fixing up, planting new plants, doing all the things that we've done, trimming shrubbery and all of that, my body has never ached like it has this time. And it's just a reminder to me that, that you know, I'm getting older and this body is starting to show some signs of wear and tear. And it's time I start taking a little bit better care of my body. That's why I went on an exercise routine and a, and a diet routine. And it still aches. You know, it's just going to happen that way. We're going to die because of that, because of Adam. In Adam's sin, we fall all. You know, you've got you to remember that. But in Jesus Christ, there is the opposite that takes place. We will die, absolutely, unless the Lord returns for us first. But our, our, our bodies will be resurrected and it will be a new dimension of life. Death in this world is not the end of things. It is the transport into which we go into a new existence. And it will happen at the day of resurrection and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Somewhere I read in one of the writings about Peter Yancey who describes a unique funeral custom conducted by African Muslims. And after the death of of, of an African Muslim, there are close family and friends who circle the casket and they quietly gaze at the body. There are no tears, no singing, no flowers, nothing. But they have a strange custom. I found this strange. They pass out pieces of peppermint candy. And at a signal, they all put the candy in their mouth. And they stand around the body 
until one by one the peppermint candy has dissolved. And then they just simply walk away. For they believe in no afterlife, and they simply believe that life in this world simply dissolves at death. Now, that's not true for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. If we're willing to commit our life to Christ, if we're willing to follow after Him, if we're willing to be His disciples, His people, to bear His name, then we are guaranteed that we will be resurrected, that we will have a transformation of our life and our body in time to come. We'll be subject to death. We'll be subject to disease. We'll be subject to this body wearing out. But there is the promise of God that we will be resurrected with a new body and a new life and a new dimension to that life because of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Now, the second implication of the resurrection, Paul says this, The resurrection of Jesus begins a chain of events that determine our future and God's ultimate victory. I think that um, the two still most pressing questions that you will find from believers are these. What is God's will for my life and what, what, what takes place at the end of time? Well, God's will for your life is both a general and particular will. A general is He wants everybody to be saved and come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then He has a particular will for you as to how you live out your life for Him. It doesn't mean that you're called into full-time ministry, but it does mean that you're full-time in your ministry as a believer in Jesus Christ. Whatever vocation you have, whatever location you have, wherever you are, that's what you're supposed to do. The next question is, you know, what about the end of time? What takes place in those times, in those end of times? And that's been an intriguing question. It's an intriguing study if you really get into it. And Paul gives us a hint of some of those things when when he speaks to us in these verses that follow. And these are, are some of the beginnings of the events that lead us into the future with God's ultimate victory. When you look at verses 23 through 24, you hear Paul summarize the order of events leading to that victory. First of all, he says, But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now look with me at the phrase in verse 24 that says, each in his own turn. That stresses the different times of resurrection. Christ was first. He was resurrected on the third day after his crucifixion. And those of us who die in this world belonging to Jesus Christ, we will also be made alive in our turn. And that will come after Jesus Christ comes back to reclaim His church called the rapture. Now, Paul gives us insight into when that resurrection takes place and how it does in 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't have time to read all of 13 through 18. It's a great passage of Scripture about that. I think we shared it last week. I've read it at so many gravesides as we commit that body into the ground and await the promise of the resurrection. But Paul simply says this. Let me give you two. He says, that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then he says, those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
That's going to be a wonderful day when the Lord comes to claim His church. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Those who are alive at that time are going to be caught up in the air with Christ. And you won't have to worry about any kind of air sickness because it's going to be a perfect process. That's what Paul says begins in this process. See, after that resurrection of Christians, then Christ will defeat the powers of this satanic evil in the world, and He will hand over the secured kingdom to God the Father. That's the promise that He makes in these verses. The delivering up of the kingdom is the key event in, in, in all of the process there of the end times. It simply means sin will no longer reign in this world, but God will rule supremely. That will be God's final conquest. Now, there are a lot of other events that take place that are chronicalized through the Scriptures and, and towards the end of the Scriptures in the New Testament. Paul doesn't elaborate on those. He just wants to kind of capsule this uh, for us right here. Now, the question then that would logically follow from that is this. Well, what about now? What about in the meantime? What about until then? Well, look at verses 25 and 26 with me. In these, Paul reminds us that Jesus is reigning right now. Even as we await the day of resurrection and the ultimate end when Christ will hand over the kingdom to God, Jesus is still reigning right now. For he says in verse 25 and 26, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you've got to notice something there. The reign, the victorious reign of Christ does not begin when all the enemies are defeated and, and wiped out for all time. But the reign of Christ is right now. He is still the Lord of lords and King of kings and He will continue to reign until the time that all demonic opposition is finally defeated. And that's absolutely central for us to remember in our day-to-day struggles You see, we might say Jesus is in control right now on a micro level in our own lives. But He's also in control on a macro level in the entire world. He has everything under control. The final outcome is certain. That Christ has been declared victorious over sin and death and hell. All of those things. And that means that when we look at the world around us, And we see there are issues that are of great concern for us and events in life that challenge us. We need to be reminded of the fact that Christ is still reigning right now. And that says we don't have to be afraid, even though there is a spiritual battle that takes place and we struggle in that sometimes. But the affirmation of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the victor and He is the overcoming and conquering Lord. And because of His resurrection, we can live with no fear. No fear of death because of the promise of the resurrection. And no fear of the power of sin because Christ is reigning and He's ruling right now. Doesn't have to wait until the end of time. Then when we look at verses 27 through 28, we see that Paul broadens that vision. And it's a beautiful picture of the Son, Jesus, who has been given tremendous authority to reign and to rule. And handing all of the created order of the redeemed humanity back to the Heavenly Father. 
He said, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And Paul wants to make that clear. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, what Paul is doing is simply this. He's showing us how God is ultimately responsible for this whole chain of events that began with the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it culminates in the destruction of death. You see, God the Father has given to God the Son, Jesus Christ, unlimited sovereignty over all creation, and there is no infringement on the Father's authority. But the climax of this process will be putting all things in subjection subjection under the Father. When Jesus Christ in obedience and submission hands over the kingdom to him. Until that time he will continue to subdue the enemies of God. And the climax of the whole work will come when he offers up the kingdom to God. And we will be tenderly and gently offered up to God at that time. Now how again do we apply those truths to our life and what does it mean for us? I think if you read those verses carefully... And then you step back and you just simply ponder them. Maybe read them again. And maybe go back and underline some powerful words that stand out for you. I think that there are several implications for us. And the first one is this. I think these these words of Scripture here call us to a more submissive lifestyle to the authority of God through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, you have to look at Jesus and see how submissive he was to the Father's will. That he left the glories of heaven to come into earth and and to be our Savior and to be the Messiah. And to ultimately die for our sins, then to be resurrected so that all of this will take place. You see, we're the kind of people, and, and, and culture has conditioned us this way. We don't like to submit to anybody. You know, we like to be our own boss. We don't want to submit to anybody. You see, that's one of the reasons there's so many problems in marriages today is because you don't read Ephesians correctly. That Paul tells us to submit to one another. We don't want to submit. When the husband decides, okay, I'm going to be the leader of this household, he says, woman, submit. And that's not what that says. And the woman is told to be submissive. It's because she does so out of respect and love because of the leadership that the husband is given. And so we miss that whole point about submission. We don't like to do that. We feel like we lose control. But you see, you gain your life when you submit to Jesus Christ. He submitted to God the Father. And it calls us then in that same sense of submission to submit to God the Father. I think a second implication for us is that this passage of Scripture also helped us lift our vision beyond our own immediate personal circumstances. The things in life, you know, that just simply wear on us and wear us down and grate on us. Now, we deal with those things, and they're real. They will continue to be issues, and we'll have to face them day by day. Now, you know, I do, and you do as well. But I think we need to look beyond those and see that 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 doesn't diminish these things in our life. They're real. They're real struggles. Don't make them any bigger than they are. But they are real issues. But I think what we fail to see is that we just kind of look at our world right where we are and what's going on with us. 
and what's of concern to us and not anything else. We don't have a tendency to look into the future and see the possibilities and see the whole cosmic creation coming under the lordship and authority of God and what God is going to do so marvelously and wondrously at the end of time. And then I think the third implication for us is then we certainly can live with confidence knowing that the ultimate outcome of everything in our life and in this world is going to be for God's good and for God's glory. You see, the resurrection reminds us that we don't live in a world ruled by random chance. But we live in a world that's under the authority of a sovereign God who has all authority and all power. And he has a perfect plan. He knows the end from the beginning, Isaiah says, and he is working that perfect plan to completion. And so we can rest with confidence and assurance, and no matter what we face, that God has everything under control. Then here's the third implication I think Paul gives to us in the resurrection. And it simply says to us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ dramatically changes how we live. I started to say it should dramatically change how we live. But, but I think it's time we quit playing around with that and say you've got some possibilities or you've got some leeway. You know, you've got some wiggle room in there. The reality is that if you and I have experienced Christ as Savior, then we are dramatically changed in our lifestyle. You see the difference? First of all, the reality of the resurrection should be an incentive for us to share the gospel with others because of their need for salvation. And we go to look at verse 29, and it's a very strange verse. It almost looks like it's out of context. Paul says, now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? This is a verse of Scripture that has no precedent anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, There are at least 40 different theological interpretations of that verse. Obviously, it refers to some kind of proxy baptism or vicarious baptism. It's kind of like an absentee ballot. You've got an absentee baptism for somebody. Mormons are the only people that I know of who do that. In fact, uh, in a church where I served in Florence County, there was a girl there who came from Utah. She met her husband from that church in Elam in Florence County when he was in the Air Force out there. She was a Mormon, and she had been baptized for two or three people who had died. She came to know the truth of the gospel, and she knew that that was no good at all. You don't, get, you don't get salvation by proxy baptism. Baptism doesn't save you anyway. But what Paul really is saying, let's just you know, deal with all the what is, put them aside. Here's what Paul is saying by pointing this out. Obviously somewhere somebody was baptized for the dead. We don't know who or where. But what Paul is saying is that the hope of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection or to make you and me so concerned for those who are lost that we're willing to take drastic action to see them come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It ought to motivate us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. The second thing we find is in verses 30 through 32, and Paul goes on to argue that it's absurd for him to undergo everything that he has done, dangers, inflictions of wounds to his body and all that, if the resurrection is not true. 
Paul says, and as for us, why do we endure danger ourselves every hour? I die every day. He says, I mean that, brothers. He said, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. See, Paul, Paul tells us here again, I would be absolutely crazy if I was willing to be subjected to every danger that I experienced if the resurrection was not a reality. Now, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? That's what Paul's saying in that passage. It would be absurd for him to go through these things in life if there was no resurrection of the dead. Why did all the disciples willingly give themselves up as martyrs as the legends of faith tell us? Why were so many others martyred, willing to be killed for their faith? Why do 170,000 people around the world every year die because of their faith? It's because of the resurrection of Christ. It's a reality. And then I think the last thing that Paul says to us in verses 33 through 34 is this, that Paul makes a strong appeal for Christians to live a pure and holy life. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. Now see, here's where Paul's saying the resurrection does dramatically change your life. And it's shown in a holy lifestyle. Paul's saying if you believe in the resurrection, then you'll live a holy lifestyle. You'll be sold out absolutely to Jesus Christ. And all the values and priorities of your life will show that. See, he warns us about being influenced by the non-Christian culture rather than believers influencing the culture. I think it's another reminder to us that if we're willing to take a stand to follow after Jesus Christ, then we will stand out in the culture where we live and we will be different. We will be different. And it will affect what we do in our own lifestyle, the choices that we make. How you arrange your budget, whether you put God's tithe first, and then you budget everything else after that, and you honor God with that, with the first fruits, with the tithe. How you spend your time. You know, like the Gideons, it costs them money out of their pocket, and it costs them their time out of their lifetime, being the most valuable resource we have today, probably. And about our energy. All of those things will come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We will stand out, and we will be different. Easter Sunday, Easter afternoon, the Masters finished in Augusta. A new champion was crowned, Bubba Watson. Bubba's one of my favorites because he plays golf left-handed, and so do I. He is from, of all places, his birthplace, hometown, Baghdad, Florida. I mean, it's probably the redneck capital of the world. Baghdad, Florida. But Bubba Watson's made it big on the pro golf tour. He averages 315 yards a drive. He leads the PGA in that. But the most significant thing about Bubba Watson is that Bubba Watson, this other reason he's one of my favorites, is because he's an outspoken believer in Jesus Christ. 
When, when you look at his, at his Twitter site, you'll find that this is the way he defines himself. And notice the priorities of his life. Christian, husband, daddy, pro-golfer. And then he throws in owner of General Lee One. Anybody know what, you, what, what he's talking about there? Remember the Dukes of Hazard and the old car General Lee? What kind of car was that? A Dodge Charger, was that what it was? I was looking at the classic car displays at the Sparkleberry Fair yesterday, and I just went wild over those. You know, and I thought, now which one was it? John Monroe had us in the golf cart riding us around and showing us all these different things. I said, what car was it that was General Lee? And we both said, we think it was a Dodge Charger. But, but Bubba Watson splurged, and he bought the original General Lee. I guess that's the only one those boys didn't tear up in the Dukes of Hazzard. But isn't that something then profound? And, he, you know, everything doesn't go hunky-dory for him when he texts and twitters and all this stuff about his faith in Christ. There are those who detweet him or whatever you do when he does that. There are those who criticize him. But there are about 39,000 messages that he sent out by Twitter. And, and he will spread the gospel in doing that. He'll say something like this. God's made everything and saved us from our sins and gives us hope and gives us eternal life. God is good. Uh, sometimes he'll tweet out some of his favorite verses, like one of his favorites. Hebrews thirteen six. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Now, obviously, most of us, there might be one or two in here, young ones coming up playing golf, who might eventually have a platform like Bubba Watson has as a pro golfer, to be able to be an outspoken uh, believer in Jesus Christ. But most of us won't have that platform. But what we do have is the everyday pattern of our life, where we go and where we live. And that's where our lifestyle and our spoken word is to be evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our life and through our faith. You see, when we go back to the heart and soul of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, you see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center of everything. And our resurrection is founded in His resurrection. And because of that, His resurrection must be central in our life. And we must be different people because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate implication of the resurrection. And so the question for you today is simply this. Is Jesus Christ, is He the center of your life? Father, thank you for this time of worship together today. Thank you for your words of Scripture that remind us of the significance, the value, the importance of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the challenge for us to be different because of the difference the resurrection makes in our life. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will descend upon us. And that your Spirit will give us wisdom and guidance and leadership to respond to Christ as Savior and to live for Him the way you call us to live as we believe in Him. And I pray it in Christ's name and for His glory.